Well, as I said at the start of the service, we're taking a look at some tough sayings from Jesus. We're taking a look at very, very difficult things that on the surface seem clear. Jesus isn't telling a parable. He's not offering some kind of riddle for us to figure out. He says things that are so blunt, so direct, that it often causes us pause. It causes us to shrink back and say, ouch, really? Is that really what he means? And oftentimes, these are the things that get Jesus into trouble. These are the hard sayings that he often brings up when he's teaching and when he's preaching. These are the sayings that made even the people in his day pause and wonder, should they follow this guy? And I think what we're going to see as we go throughout this series, as we take a look at Jesus as a truth teller, as we take a look at some of the hard sayings of Jesus, is that even in the midst of these hard sayings, what Jesus' desire is to do is ultimately to show us the love of God. And so tonight, as we look at one more of those uh, sayings, I think it's only right that we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message that he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you have brought us together this evening, that tonight we have an opportunity to come and to sit under your teaching, to hear your word spoken, to wrestle with the tough sayings that you have. And so, Lord, we pray that even as we hear hard words, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in our hearts and in our minds, uh, helping us to receive that message, that you would open our eyes to the message of grace that you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So tonight, we're really wrestling with a question. And the question is simply this. What is a Christian anyway? I mean, the reason why I want us to wrestle with that question is because really that's the backdrop for the entire Sermon on the Mount. As Pastor Tony said last week, the Sermon on the Mount is basically Jesus' public declaration of what it means to be one of his disciples, of what it means to be someone who follows him. Because the audience for the Sermon on the Mount is, yes, Jesus' disciples, but it's also the crowds that are gathered around him. It's almost as if Jesus is saying to his disciples and to everybody watching, if you want to know who my people are, if you want to know who, who, the, who my disciples are, what they look like, what they do, this is what it's all about. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is a description of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And as Tony said last week, he said that that's a very challenging thing because the words of the Sermon on the Mount are so familiar around the world that often non-Christians uh, know them just as well as Christians do. Now, there's a very, very high bar set with the Sermon on the Mount. Something that we are accountable to, not only to God, but to the people around us who know these words. And so when we ask that question, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, the Sermon on the Mount is actually a very, very good place to go to understand what Christian life is supposed to look like. People have tried to soften the words of the Sermon on the Mount down through the years to say, well, Jesus is simply showing us all the things that we can't do by ourselves so that hopefully we'll ask for his forgiveness. But that's not really how Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount, nor is it how he ends the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying very, very clearly, my people are marked by something. Their way of life should look different from the rest of the world. But even if you don't study the entire Sermon on the Mount— 
If you just look at our passage for this evening, you're going to get a pretty good idea of what sets Jesus' followers apart from everybody else. Because in these last verses, as we come into Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 and following, Jesus kind of sums up the whole thing. What he tells us is he says, if you really want to know what my people look like, you just need to look at the fruit that they bear. Okay? He gives this illustration of a tree because he highlights the fact that he's like, you know, in those last days, there are going to be false prophets. There's going to be people who, who kind of come along who say that they follow me. But the way that you're going to know whether they truly follow me or not is by the fruit that they bear. He says, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit. A bad tree can't bear good fruit. And every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down. It's thrown in the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. We'll recognize them by their fruit. Now, we can look at that and we can be like, okay, well then, then that should be pretty easy, right? I mean, uh, if it's by their fruit, then we can, should very, very easily be able to tell who Jesus' followers are because there will be people who are good and people who are bad, right? Good fruit, bad fruit. So, you know, the good people are those people who pray a lot. Are, are who give generously to the poor. They're the people who know God's word and who preach it and proclaim it and do their devotions and things like that. And the bad people, the people who don't pray and they're not generous and they don't read God's word and they don't proclaim it. And, and this should be pretty easy, right? Good fruit, a good tree, good fruit, good people. Bad tree, bad fruit, bad people. Until Jesus throws us a curveball. Because right after saying you're going to know them by their fruit... He goes on and he says something else. He says this. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And now all of a sudden it's just like, whoa, wait a second. What do you mean, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven? I mean, if it's good tree, good fruit, good people, bad tree, bad fruit, bad people, if it's those who pray and those who don't, those who are generous and those who are not, those who know God's word and those who don't, how can you say that those who come to me saying, Lord, Lord, don't get into the kingdom? See, Jesus gives us what initially we think is a very, very clear test, but then he kind of muddies the waters a little bit, doesn't he? And so what is Jesus talking about here? What does he mean? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, I think in order to get our answer to that question, we have to understand that Jesus is not drawing a comparison between good and bad people. That actually, if you look at the entire Sermon on the Mount, his comparison is not between those who don't pray and those who do. It's not between those who don't give generously and those who do. It's not between those who don't know God's word and those who do. If actually, if you go through the entire Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? He says things like this. He says, he says, some people pray like this, but not you. When you pray, you pray like this. And, and some people give generously their money this way, but when you give your money generously, no, no, you give it this way. 
Some people know the laws and, and they live out the laws in this way, but you, you should know the law deep down in your heart and this is what it really means to, to take that law and to live by it. You see, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't comparing the non-religious to the religious. He's not comparing the good to the bad. That actually throughout the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is comparing is he is comparing people who are religious versus people who know Jesus. He's comparing people who are religious to people who know Jesus. It's a very, very different distinction. Because what Jesus is saying is he's saying that there can be those people who have all the outward marks of a religious life and yet their hearts can still be far from me. And we see this in the description of these people that he then gives. He says, on that day, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Three times they say, in your name, in your name, in your name. These are people who know Jesus. They call him Lord, which means this isn't just like a polite term. In the New Testament, and especially when Matthew uses the word Lord, it's a divine title. It means the divine one. It means, it means God. It means God's anointed one. Lord, Lord. So, so they understand Jesus' identity correctly. Likewise, they say, did we not prophesy in your name? That means that they know the word of God. And furthermore, not only do they know the word of God, they're proclaiming the word of God. And did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works? These are people who have done miracles who've done incredible works for God, works that people would look at and say, wow, that person must be, that person must have a direct line to heaven. And what Jesus is saying here is, he's saying, you can have all the right doctrine. You can know God's word. You can perform miracles and do many wonderful things for God. That still doesn't make the cut. That still doesn't make the cut. Because you can have all the outward signs of religion and your heart can still be far from Jesus. That's why he concludes this teaching with these words. After they give all these things that they've done, he says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. See, the question that Jesus presents us with is on what basis do we believe we are accepted by God? I think many people in our world today believe that the basis by which we're accepted by God is this external stuff. It's all the religious things that we do. It's knowing the right theology. It's understanding your scriptures really, really, really well. It's doing wonderful things in the name of God, whether they be miracles or acts of service or so on and so forth. And what Jesus is saying here is he's saying that's, that's not really what this is all about. And to help give an illustration of what I mean, I want to go back to something that uh, happened to me when I was in college. When I was in college, um, there, was a, there was a group on, on, on the college campus and their whole goal was to foster dialogue between different religious people. 
Um, and it was actually a very, very noble goal because what they started with was this idea that, you know, uh, we look in the news and we see people of different religions always fighting one another. And they said, if we here at the university can create an environment where people of different religious stripes can come together and talk reasonably, we will have done something good. And I think that they were right. And so what they would do is every year they would gather together students from all different religious backgrounds for the purpose of going out into the Champaign-Urbana community and serving that community. And so I got involved in one of these projects, and it was a, it was a pretty amazing day. It was a, about 250, 300 students, uh, Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, Hindus, Christians, uh, Baha'is, Mormons. We even had some atheists and agnostics join us, and we kind of all got together. And, and there were like 12 different service projects, and so we broke up into teams, and we served in homeless shelters and food pantries, and we went to, um, to nursing homes, and, and we basically just went out into the community. And we, and side by side, we just served our community. And then we got together at the end of all the service projects for lunch. And uh, as we sat on the quad eating our lunch, uh, one of the exercises that they brought us to is they said, we simply want you to go around and talk about what is it in your religious or philosophical tradition that inspires you to serve? The, the effort was to try and build some common ground and to so, show that, yeah, though we have doctrinal differences and things like that, we also have some common values. And so it led to this great discussion in which we're all sharing from different, like, scriptures, from our different faith traditions that talk about service. And there was even a little handout of different religious uh, passages from things like the Quran and the Torah and the Bible and... Um, and uh, the Buddhist scriptures, and like the Dhammapada, and the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu scriptures talking about service. And it was a very kumbaya moment, because we're all sitting there, and we're just like, yeah, this is great. Like, yeah, we're different, but we've got some things in, the, in common, and we're all enjoying our lunch. It's a great day, sun's out, things are beautiful. Until one guy in our circle threw a monkey wrench into the whole thing. He was sitting next to me, and he kind of raised his hand, and he said, hey, my name is Mark. I'm an agnostic. I don't really know if there's a God. I'm just not sure. I really, and, and in fact, I'm, I'm not really sure it even matters. But the reason I'm here today is because I thought this idea of people of different religions getting together to serve you know, their community was a really good idea. And so I wanted to, I wanted to take part. And, and one of the things that I love is that you know, we always see religious people fighting each other in the news. And this is the, one, the first time I've seen religious people all getting together and just sharing, you know, working together. But I still have a problem. Here's my problem. I'm reading your different scriptures and they say things like, I need to serve in order to pay off my sin. Or I need to serve in order to be accepted into heaven. Or I need to serve if I truly want to attain enlightenment or balance my karma. And as a non-religious person, that still seems selfish to me. And I wanted to know what do you guys all say to that? And there's a lot of uncomfortable shuffling now. Kumbaya has just been stolen. <laughs> no more kumbaya. And people are like looking at each other nervously and like we're all looking at the person who was moderating the discussion and he's like twiddling his thumbs and shoving pizza in his mouth, you know, trying not to say anything. And finally, and I just spoke up as a fairly young Christian. I think I'd been like a Christian for a whopping year this point. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. And what I believe is that there's nothing I can do to earn my way into heaven. That there's nothing I can do to pay off my sin. There's nothing that I can do to cancel that debt. 
But the good news is that Jesus did that for me. Jesus paid the price. Jesus took that upon himself. I'm only accepted because of what Jesus has done and because Jesus loves me. And so any service that I do is simply my way of saying thank you to God for what you've done for me and participating in the work that God wants to do in the world. It's not about me. And Mark kind of leaned back and he said, huh, that's, that's pretty cool. Can the rest of you all say that? And the circle was silent. More awkward shuffling and shoving some pizza in our mouths and we said, oh, thank you for coming and the thing ended. But you see the point? Jesus is saying you can do all the right religious things. But if you're doing all the right religious things in order to earn your way into heaven, in order to gain the accolades and the praise of people, your heart is far from him. Because essentially what you're doing in that moment is you're treating Jesus like he's your ticket through the pearly gates. That you're looking at God and simply saying, how can I do enough to pay you off so that you will give me your blessings? We're treating God in some sort of transactional manner that ultimately betrays the fact that we don't really have a relationship with him at all. It's why they come and they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff in your name? Didn't we do all this stuff in your name? Didn't we do all this stuff in your name? Shouldn't we get in? And Jesus is saying, I don't know who you are. Because you weren't doing any of this stuff out of gratitude. You weren't doing any of this stuff because you wanted to join me in the work that I was doing in the world. You were doing this stuff to try and pay me off. To earn your way in. On the surface, everything looks good, but your hearts are far from me. Truly, I will tell you, there will be many who will say to me on the last day, Lord, Lord, who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. See, this is an invitation for us to do some self-reflection. To ask ourselves the question, why, is, why do we really do what we do? As religious people, do we do things because we think that it's our good works that are going to get us in? Or are we Christians in the sense that we know that it's only because of what Jesus has done that we have a relationship with God? That the lives that we live, the reason that we pray is not to earn brownie points, but because we want to talk to our Father in heaven. That the reason we give generously is not so that we can rack up some sort of tally sheet to cash in on the last day, but simply because we recognize everything that I have is a good gift from my Father in heaven, and he's given it to me to share is the reason that we live out the commandments of Jesus because we think that by doing so, we will have gotten good enough to get through the pearly gates? Or do we live out the commandments of Jesus because we trust him? That when he says, I want you to live this way, don't do this and yes, do this, it's because we trust him. That we know that he's died for us in order to redeem us and to save us for a better life. And so we trust him when he calls us to do things. And we live accordingly. Why do we do what we do? See, Jesus' distinction here between good fruit and bad fruit is not a distinction between non-religious people and religious people. It's a distinction between religious people and Jesus' people. 
people who think that their piety and their religion get them into the kingdom? Or people who understand that I get into the kingdom by the grace of God which comes to me through Jesus and I follow him because I love him and I trust him. And I just want to be a part of the work that he's doing. Why do we do what we do? Because this ultimately matters. I can't tell you how many times I've come into uh, meetings with people um, in order to plan a funeral. And as we're talking and talking about what that funeral is going to be all about, you know, I'll often ask the family, I'll say, so tell me about this person's relationship with God. And some of them will say, this person trusted God through everything. They knew that they were loved by God. They knew that Jesus loved them. Their entire life was a life of simply following him wherever he led. That even when they were wrestling with their sickness and old age, you should have just seen the hope and the peace that they had in knowing their Lord and Savior. And honestly, those, those funerals are, are, are wonderful to plan. Because what we get to do in those moments is bear testimony to the faithfulness of God through all of life's seasons. But then there are those meetings that are very, very difficult. When I ask that question, tell me about their relationship with God, and they say, well, you know, they really, they really didn't pray all that much. Uh, they they kind of went to church on Christmas and Easter because they thought that that's what they're supposed to do. Uh, but they were a good person, right? I mean, they, they did a lot of good stuff, right? So they're okay. It's enough, right? I mean, they did enough. And in those moments, I got to be honest, I hate those conversations. My heart just breaks because I'm like, boy, I hope so. (laughs) But the reason they're heartbreaking is because if you are counting on your performance to get you in, that's not a whole lot of hope. Jesus wants to give us a better hope. A hope that's not dependent on our performance and our good enough. A hope that ultimately is given from knowing that we are loved deeply by God. That he can carry us through all of life's seasons. That in the ups and the downs, I can know that the Lord is with me. And that that's the reason I follow him. Is because of all that he's done. Why do we do what we do? It's really the challenge of the final verses of the Sermon on the Mount. So the question then becomes, so how do we know? If he says it's by their fruit that they will, you will know them, but it's not all that external religious stuff, how do we really know? And the answer that Jesus says is by telling one, giving one final illustration. It's an illustration of two houses. And I love this illustration. Here's what he says. He says, anyone who hears these words of mine Puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. See, Jesus says is that initially on the surface, the difference between Christians and religious people aren't all that easy to see. On the surface, both houses might actually look the same. They both might look pretty darn good, but the way you'll know is when the storms of life come. 
Because when the storms of life come, the people who know me are the ones who trust in me in the ups and the downs. They're the people who cling to me even when they're at their very, very worst. They're the people who know and are willing to follow me wherever I call, whether it's going to earn them praise from people or scorn, are willing to do it because they trust me and are willing to walk with me in everything that I call them to. They're the ones whose foundations are built on the rock. They put my words into practice because they trust that when I call, that my words are trustworthy and true. That when I tell them to live a certain way, it's not so that they can earn their way in, but it's simply because I'm describing what the best life truly is. And because they trust me, their lives do look different. And you can tell the difference, ultimately, when those difficult moments come, when following Jesus is no longer convenient, when following Jesus is no longer comfortable, when following Jesus doesn't earn, doesn't earn you anything. He's saying, then you know. Then you know the ones whose foundation is set on the rock. And so the question is, where are your foundations? Why do you do what you do? Do you do religious things in the hopes that they would earn you something? Then know this, you're building your house on sand. If it's about you and your performance and your works, that's no foundation at all. Because a day will come, a day of testing, when all of your willpower, when all of your best intentions, when all of the facades are going to crack, crumble, and shatter into nothing. But if you trust Jesus with everything, knowing that you're accepted because of his love and of his grace, looking to what he has done for you, then even in those moments when life is not going well, when the storms rage around you, when you fall short over and over and over again, within your heart you can still say these words, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We build our lives on what he's already accomplished. We follow him as an act of thanksgiving and of joy, simply because we want to be with the one who gave everything for us. Being a follower of Jesus is not about checking off a, a list of religious to-dos. It's about knowing the God of the universe who loves us so much he was willing to enter into our world to walk with us, to die for us, and to rise again to give us eternal life. That's what it means to know Christ. To know that his salvation is sufficient for you, that he is the only rock on which your life needs to be built. And you can trust him that even in the storms of life, his truth, his words, and ultimately his very life and power, his presence go with you. To strengthen you in faith both now 
and unto life everlasting. That's the truth. It's a truth that we can build our lives on. It's with that truth in mind that I want to close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you are the rock, that it's not about our performance, that it's not about the religious things that we have to do to please you, but rather you're already delighted in us. That what you desire most is not our performance, but just a relationship, to know you, to walk with you, to trust you. And so, Lord, we lay down those things that we've been putting our trust and our hope in, those things that are based on really our own performance and our own desires. And, Lord, we simply say, you're enough. You are my rock. And, Lord, in those moments when we're tempted to doubt that, remind us of your faithfulness. Help us to see the lengths that you are willing to go with us in the storms of life, that you are willing to even go to a cross and to a tomb in order to set us free. May that give us hope, strength, courage, and ultimately the power to follow wherever you call. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we say, amen.